You're listening to And what is poppin', everybody? You are listening to the Good Pop Culture Club, episode 164. My name is Marvin Yu, and joining me, as always, to talk about all the good pop that gets us through our days. Uh, welcome, once again, to the once-in-future professional Asian-American, Just You. Hey, Marvin. Hey. Although you had a pretty, like... White girl weekend, you can say uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I wasn't sure how to... Yes, you had no, a, it's a white, white girl, girl weekend. weekend. Yeah, I'll talk more about that in my What's Poppin' because that really took the whole weekend, like mentally, physically, spiritually. I mean, we I'm met up earlier today recovering. and you were mentioning that you were still like wrecked from the weekend, which I didn't yeah, realize Taylor I, Swift had that power over people. I think it's like the come down from like an adrenaline rush, but like <laughs> a like a two day adrenaline rush. Um, and so I'm finally feeling it. My voice still isn't a hundred percent back. So, you know, but it was all worth it. Yeah. Excited to hear more about that. Also joining us, the most professional of culture editors, Han Wen. Hey, hey. You had a less exciting weekend <laughs> compared to Jess. I was Probably burning as many calories as she was. Probably though. just as stressful, though. Not gonna lie. <laughs> yeah, it uh, it was very stressful. I was not just cleaning, spring cleaning, but I was major overhauling like things in my house. Like I completely redid my dining room. I got rid of. I constructed like a breakfast nook. I mopped floors. Like you know, stuff I hadn't <laughs> done in in like a year. So yes, things that are overdue, and my place still looks like a mess. But I feel semi gratified. Yeah, always, I always say you, you gotta break. Yeah, you gotta break a few eggs, right, to make an omelet. It's fine. <laughs> break, break a few Gregs to make a omelet. Oh, uh, I still okay. have not watched season three or season four, <laughs> whatever last it's, season is. It's four, all right. right. It's all right. Yeah, I, I think season two was the best. So. Mm. Well, it's on my two watch list, including The Witcher, which I'm curious to see if it's as bad as people say I, it is. Right. I just haven't even checked in on season two. So, oh. uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I I quit a few things that I something about the pandemic is making me quit things like a lot earlier than I expected. So. Yeah. Also, knowing the fact that this is Henry Cavill's last season and they're like, yeah, you know, and he's kind of an asshole. So, <laughs> so, yeah, it's hard for me to, you know, yeah. like I didn't finish watching Ted Lasso season three oh. so oh well i do want to watch Any? welcome to wrexham that seems like a fun yes like, i do that sounds like something compliment. i would like i mean if we suffered through dream just because i like soccer i can watch welcome to wrexham <laughs> <laughs> um anyway so yes yeah. i had a right like he's not a jerk right he's still cool we're still i yeah, mean have yeah. no heroes yeah i mean look he's he, he's a white dude and this is about a team of white dudes so you know uh, have our expectations and it's all about football but it is a little bit more um feel good so yeah i have nothing against ryan reynolds personally <laughs> but like he is kind of i think the ultimate symbol of how they keep letting you fail if you are a white man yeah in hollywood let me just so many bombs and they were like no 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 we still believe in him and i'm like really and let me just tell you when i first heard he was cast uh in something bigger when i saw him in two guys a girl a girl in a pizza place because I was like that dude he got cast in something else um, and I was like is he sleeping with someone uh, to yeah. be fair I feel <laughs> like even in his bombs he's probably the best parts of those bombs but like they were major bombs they were like <laughs> yeah. three yeah. digit million bombs I, you know I, like anyone else a woman 
or a person yeah. of color, like they would have no career. Mm. I think he's kind of proven himself by now enough that I don't really hate him. Um, but yeah, for a while I, I was heard very his gin is very good. Oh, well, there you go. We should try it one we'll, day. I like we'll a gin and tonic. I like uh, <laughs> what's it called? Um, I I also have a unreasonable, and I admit it's unreasonable. It has no no rationality behind it. I do not like Blake Lively because mm-hmm. she was Serena Vanderwoodson, and I hate the character of Serena Vanderwoodson on so many levels, and I could never like get. I cannot disassociate them too. <laughs> So, is it fair to Blake Lively? No. Does it affect her life at all? Absolutely not. So, they also had a plantation wedding. Oh, yeah. Guess that's a that's that's a flag there, right? Yeah. I mean, he is Canadian. Is she Canadian? She should know. No, better, he's right? Canadian. Yeah, and she's not. Mm, so she also, you're Canadian. I still like that's close enough. You should know. <laughs> You're Canadian. You know not to do it. Yeah. yeah You've yeah. probably been around. You, think, you guys have probably been in the United States the same amount of time. Okay. <laughs> so there's no, no, we're not giving him a pass on that. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Uh, oh, going back to gin. It's the Negroni that I like. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, Ooh, I love. Yeah. You could drink a lot of those in Italy, Han. Oh, I'm excited. Yes. I will definitely look it up. Because, um, <laughs> yeah, I like a bitter, a bitter drink for some reason, even though I don't drink coffee. I'm an Aperol spritz girl, but like, I'll drink good. a quarter yeah. of it and then fall asleep. But, but <laughs> yeah. it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, for this episode of The Good Pop, we're checking out the latest, I guess, Asian American adjacent yes. childhood favorite cartoon we, of the we, 80s. We'll take it. We'll yeah. take we, it. They're like adopt. You're like we trans accept species them. Yeah. adoptees. We'll take it. We'll probably dive more into like the um, very. Complicated, but not really, history of the mm-hmm. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But we are talking about the new Ninja Turtles movie, um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. Um, but before we get to that, let's find out what pop culture is beginning us through this week. Uh, Jess, I've delayed it long enough. Tell us about your Taylor Swift mm-hmm. experience. Yes. So I went on the Saturday show, which she recorded the fr- Thursday, Friday, Saturday show for what I assume will be something on Netflix. Some her other concerts, like the Reputation Tour, are on Netflix, as is her documentary film. And it was like a three-day blitz of preparation. So I thought I was going to be too cool. But as the concert approached, I realized I did want to participate in the full experience. So I ran out. I bought a bunch of beads congratulations to the bead industry they're doing Mm -hmm. great um i made a shit ton of bracelets i stayed up until 4 a.m the night before the concert just making bracelets and then like made more bracelets in the morning and then like took like hours to get ready like you don't understand i don't try this hard like ever (laughs) like usually if i try this hard i have to get professional help you know what I mean? Like I like the last time I was this like physically beauty hair makeup prepped, it was for my wedding. Um, and I did employ help for that. This time I was like, I'm gonna do it. Like I, I did the whole glam eyes. My hair is really long, it took forever to curl. Like every there's three other girls. I went with my friends from college, as well as uh, Raymond, my husband, and we I mean he was fine. So he had to do like other errands for us, like pick up food, pick up ice. <laughs> Because we were like, oh, we're going to be prepared to be stuck in this parking lot. 
So there's like the legit parking logistics. If you have to go to the SoFi Park at the Forum, it's great. You know, it's like 50 bucks, but it's worth it. You get in and out pretty fast. And and yeah, so like it, we the concert didn't start until like 630. Those were her openers. She didn't go on till 830. We got there like 430 because that you just had to get there. And once we're mm-hmm. there, it's like the vibes were immaculate. Every never felt safer. Everyone's very nice. Um, like everyone's there, everyone's dressed up, like everyone's there to have a good time. Just a lot of good, like female friendship energy. We're in the freaking nosebleeds, like not the 500, but like pretty close obstructed views. And it didn't even matter. It was an amazing time. Taylor Swift is a fucking beast. Mm. She sang for three hours straight. She has, I've seen her before and I've been a fan since I was, in high school like young in high school so i was like a taylor swift fan before it was like socially acceptable to be a taylor swift fan before like 1989 and all that and it was just like damn we've both come a long way and she's like so great now like she sounds great vocally like i don't know what she did in pandemic but that girl's like an overachiever workaholic who just wants everyone to love her and she thinks she's she's like a she's a typical like she is the most enneagram type three person i've ever seen who needs like external validation. So I don't know what she did when she couldn't get external validation in those three years of pandemic. Plus like the six years where everyone was like hating on her, like, like the, the, during the Kanye era. And I'm like, Oh girl, I don't know what you did, but I feel like you were doing a lot of Pilates. You were doing a lot of strength training and vocal training. Cause she sounds amazing. She is so physically strong. She could do that whole set hmm. like six days in a row. And this is the end of her concert and you would not know that she's been doing this for like months and i'm like girl how are you not like just dying like i am tired like standing (laughs) and like jumping and cheering for you like how are you doing this nonstop? and she was filming so uh, so it was like kind of a double-edged sword i feel like we didn't get her unhingedness Mm. that i've been seeing on some of this tour but like she was giving it like a hundred and like fifty percent because she was filming um and it was just like i've never been to church i've never i've never been like part of like a like a like a religious community but i have been told that the experience of the taylor swift concert is why people really like going to church it's like mm. when you've been touched like when steve yun goes to that korean church <laughs> and like breaks down uh. apparently that is what happened to me i cried and i'm not a crier i'm not a concert crier um it was just like very very it's as amazing as everyone says it is. And it's still hard to explain actually what feel the feeling of actually being there is like. So I don't know if it hits the same if you're not a Taylor Swift fan and you haven't been following her. But some mm-hmm. of my, you know, my college friends and I, we've both been like listening to her since we were like teenagers. And she's like, you know, our age. So it is just like this very like cool, like you kind of also remember like every phase of your own life as she takes you through the eras of her music. You're like, oh, I remember like, oh, this song was about my high school boyfriend. This song made <laughs> me think about that one time in college where like I went out with my friends. Like this made me think of my college boyfriend. Oh no, this made me think of my adult, like that heartbreak in adulthood. And so it just kind of brings it all back. And I think she was really smart in the way she structured this tour about like basically singing hits from her entire catalog and, you know, props to her for having a 17-year-long career at the age of 33 where she can already do this. 
I don't know what she's gonna do in the future. Like, <laughs> how are you gonna top this? Like, you're gonna do Eras Part Two and make it like a six, like a like a whole weekend concert. You have to come back every single day, like the Wagner Ring Cycle, like the opera. Like, you have to come back every single day for a weekend to experience the full catalog of Taylor. She's 33. That's insane. <laughs> like to be that like to have that to have a catalog that deep so yeah which is not to say it's great um i physically do not think i can handle like doing this again <laughs> <laughs> um sunday was like a wash we were all so tired i was like i was so dehydrated and i've been drinking water i'm i'm trying to stay hydrated i've been liquid IVing. i chugged some coconut water i'm still dehydrated <laughs> But my goodness, it was great. Yeah. I'm glad you had a good time because I remember last week you were lamenting that you had like relatively bad seats for this concert. And I'm glad that the spirit of Taylor Swift was able, was able to reach you all the way up in the nosebleeds. Yes. It felt like we were on the floor, even though we were in the rafters. Like that's <laughs> the best way I can describe it. Like it was the same energy no matter where you were sitting. Um, but on the theoretical level, still kind of pissed because again, I've gotten very good tickets. I got very, very good tickets for her tour the one that she canceled and that one was like i don't know how Ticketmaster fucked it up this time but i was like i don't understand why i did not get like priority access versus some other people i'm pretty sure i am like if you Ticketmaster, if you like mind the data you would see that i have a longer track record and what about my taylor points i have so many <laughs> taylor points or whatever she called it, where you could like gain points by playing Reputation, which is where I feel like a lot of people like dropped off for a little bit. Like they loved 1989 and then Reputation kind of soured them because the marketing or like the the persona of that era people didn't quite get yet. Actually a very good album. Has some of her worst songs, but everything <laughs> else is really good on that album. Um, so yeah, and it was just really it was really fun. It was really fun. Would recommend. I would. Um, there was one point where I just turned over to my friend, Mabel, who I was sitting next to. It was during I Knew You Were Trouble. And there's a part where Taylor just kind of goes, ah, ah. And, and we were just like, do you know that scene in Midsommar where Florence Pugh is just like gutturally screaming and all like the Swedish pe- cult people are like doing it with her? That's literally what it sounded and looked like. <laughs> we were just like gutturally screaming like we were being sacrificed. But it was all like in a positive way. <laughs> That's what Taylor Swift brings out. She should start a cult. I would join it. She did start a cult. <laughs> I was going to say happy for you, but I don't know if I can say that after that statement. <laughs> it was really good. <laughs> I know I sound crazy, but it was really good. Oh, God, I sound like I'm in a cult. Huh. All right, Han, what's popping with you? Way less exciting, um, but because I was so busy this weekend, I really didn't do that much uh, pop culture wise. I even saw like the movie that we're going to talk about like on a Thursday, just because I knew I was going to be super busy. But because I still make it to the gym every day um, to stay sane, I am still listening to audiobooks. So the latest YA thing I'm going to bring to your attention. <laughs> um, uh, is a book called Something More. Uh, the title, I feel, is very generic. Um, but it is a YA novel by Jackie Kalele. 
Um, and it's about a Palestinian teenager who before her, I think it's sophomore year, no, freshman year, uh, named Jessie, who learns that she gets a diagnosis that she is autistic. Um, and so that sort of freaks her out. But at the same time, knowing this diagnosis seems to help her um, understand the way she acts and how she approaches things. And so um, she's going to therapy, but she also like has this journal where she sets out goals. Um, and so uh, she's also very boy crazy. And um, one of the things that I have to say that even though it irritated the hell out of me, I appreciate it because it was very authentic was her boy craziness meant that sometimes she made bad decisions. <laughs> and who amongst us, especially as a teenager who had a crush on per oh, yes. a person, didn't make bad decisions because someone was hot or made your heart flutter or whatever it was. Um, so, um, but what I also found really endearing about her was that um, she, because of her constant masking, I guess, um, she also had this desire to perform on stage. And um, she felt very comfortable doing that because that's sort of like an... Uh, an acceptable mask, you know, that everyone, and so she was able to be sort of like free through characters. And so I won't give it away, but <clears throat> there is, even though she's a freshman and she's not allowed to join drama, she does somehow through connections and finagling end up um, in a performance of Little Shop of Horrors. Um, so I thought that was very cute. And this is actually something that I wouldn't mind seeing as a movie. I think this would be very just i don't know all sorts of adorable um she learns how to make friends because previously she's like making friends she finds hard to do because sometimes they're either backstabby or they don't say what they mean but um she's able to figure out who's good and who's not um after a while so i don't know i thought neurodivergent or not i felt like this was a very relatable teenage um book um, that I think would make a delightful Disney movie, <laughs> Disney Plus movie. So, yeah, I, I I really enjoyed this one. Theater kids for the win. Yeah, theater <laughs> kids, and also as someone who is self-diagnosed as neurodivergent, I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, compared to the film last week, Dream, the vibes aren't bad this time, right? <laughs> the vibes check right. out. Right, <laughs> right. And I haven't checked it out, but I... I feel like because of the specificity of her also being Palestinian, that I assume that the author knows of what she is writing when it comes to the autism. So, um, but uh, yeah, it just felt like she wasn't over explaining, but she just, and she didn't make someone like act like the good doctor, you know? <laughs> so it felt very nuanced and actually very funny. So yeah, yeah. I enjoyed it. Okay, Marvin, how about you? What's popping? All right, so um, as we all know, last week I dove back into the world of anime, dusting off my Crunchyroll account. So I've been catching up with um, this season's new shows. And so um, the one that I watched recently is called Reign of the Seven Spellblades, which um, the tagline, I would say, is basically, imagine Harry Potter's, but instead of wands, they use swords. Um, mm. And the author isn't terrible. So are <laughs> the swords... <laughs> isn't, isn't a transphobe? Um, are the swords... Magical, and they also yeah. use them to cut people. So, so they there's a lot both. of really good, great world building in this show. Um, so much so that the first four episodes kind of actually get bogged down by the world building. But um, mm. there's five episodes in so far, and the story is actually picking up. We're trying starting to get into the meat of the, the drama. Um, so basically, um, the main characters attend a magical academy that's also a boarding school. And in this world, wizards cast spells with swords because of the tactical disadvantage they have in close quarters combat using wands. 
So they mm. use their swords as the medium to cast spells. Mm. But when they're in close combat, they can use the swords for close quarter combat. Yeah. <laughs> ah. I, I like that better because, you know, a wand, I guess as fun as it is to just wave around, it is just a stick. Yeah. So. <laughs> so they actually explained this in World that like it's developed because at some point in history, a non-magical swords person was able to overpower a spellcaster because they were able to get close and like strike mm. from close range. Mm-hmm. So from then on. Is, but is this contemporary, like set in a contemporary world? No, it's set in like a fantasy world. Okay. Because so, yeah. another thing about Harry Potter was that people were always like, why didn't Voldemort just get a gun and like shoot <laughs> Harry? <laughs> but you know, guns are not a, like in play in this world that makes a lot more sense as well um and so because you have this like sword and sorcery setup there are some pretty cool fights and you know with any anime with cool fights there are special moves and in the series the most ultimate special moves are called spell blades which are spells and techniques that cannot be countered in a duel so if you're going up against a wizard who wields Mm -hmm. a spell blade then it's game over. You lose. Um, and in the world, there are six known spell blades um, with unknown wielders. Um, and I know what you're oh. thinking, but wait, the title of this anime is The Reign of the Seven Spell Blades. And to find out the reason why it's seven, you're going to have to watch the anime. But the show definitely does wear its inspirations on sleeve, like your main group of characters. You have the mysterious protagonist. You have a doofy, redheaded best friend character. Ooh. You have a short brunette with like social activist tendencies. Like You can definitely see where the influences of the setting come from. Um, but I'm having a good time. Like I mentioned, the initial few episodes is a little clunky with world building but the show is coming up to like the climax of the first arc and you know i've read ahead a little bit in the manga and the light novel and the anime is almost at the part where the true story the true central narrative arc of reign of the seven spellblades is revealed which is that underneath the um magic academy storyline um this is actually a revenge thriller um it turns out that our main character oliver is actually enrolled in school in order to hunt down the teachers who murdered his mother, who herself was once one of the most powerful wizards in the land. It's essentially like, imagine if like the story of Harry Potter was that he enrolled in school in order to hunt down and murder Snape, who he believes betrayed his parents. You know, here's the thing that I've noticed is I don't necessarily like revenge stories when they're American, but I like them when they're Asian. (laughs) So this sounds good. Yeah, I feel like you definitely see this in a lot of like Korean revenge dramas where like the main character takes on an assumed identity and goes hunts down one by one the people who wronged them in the past or wronged their family and like visits justice upon them. And the main character, Oliver, is he's a very powerful wizard because his mother was a powerful wizard herself. And he himself has a spell blade, but he has to like downplay his abilities. So to avoid the suspicions of the people that he's hunting who are the teachers of this school. Oh, God. They all just happen to be teachers at the school. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, highly suspicious, but okay. Yeah, so I'm curious to see um, how this adaptation goes. Um, The anime is being produced by JC Staff, which is a company that has an up and down um, track record with anime and light novel adaptations. The animation does look janky at times, but um, you can tell that they put the resources in when it counts because the battle scenes so far have been pretty top notch. So um, Reign of the Seven Spellblades is streaming now on Crunchyroll. I think it's great. It's one of several strong shows um, this anime season. So I'll definitely be checking back in later weeks and it's always great in my opinion just to have some more alternatives to um harry potter in media so yes that's fair yeah yeah um and with that that'll do it for this edition of what's poppin um we're gonna take a quick break when we come back we're heading to the sewers of manhattan 
to hang out with some of our favorite mutant teens. Um, stick around. We'll be right back. Podcast Asians in Baseball alongside Naomi Ko and Scott Okamoto. Asians in Baseball is exactly what it sounds like a podcast about the Asian and Asian Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander Americans in Major League Baseball. Every week, we break down the highlights of what's going on with Asians in Baseball and then take a deeper dive into the Asian and Asian Americans past and present who have shaped baseball as it is today. Whether you're Kim Ang's number one fan or you've never even heard of Hideo Nomo, we've got something for everyone especially for the Shohei Otani stands. Maybe too much for the Shohei Otani stands. Listen to Asians in Baseball wherever you get podcasts, part of the Potluck Podcast Collective. Hey, Sharon. Hey, Remen. How are folks still racist? I know, right? We're like two decades into the 21st century. Yeah. And second question, where's my jetpack? Well, I can't help you there, but have I got a podcast for you. Modern Minorities is a show where each week, my longtime pal Raman and I uncover common and uncommon truths that we all need to hear for our majority brains and ears. Yeah, Sharon and I have spoken to doctors, lawyers, directors, climate activists, angry Asians, athletes, chefs, writers. Folks who are black, brown, gay, straight, and everything in between. Past guests have included comedian Margaret Cho, Southern Poverty Law Center journalist Geraldine Mariba, comics creator Jean Lun Yang, and many, many more. We've even talked about Ramadan, Black History Month, Kamala Khan, and Robin being queer. It's like we're trying to solve racism with the podcast. Challenge accepted. So check out Modern Minorities at modmypod.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Remember, we're all modern minorities, but we're no one's model minority. And welcome back to the Good Pop Culture Club. On this episode, we are discussing a new animated Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem, uh, which is in theaters now. Um, this edition is directed by Jeff Rowe, who co-wrote the screenplay with Seth Rogen, Evan Goldberg, Dan Hernandez, and Benji Samet. It is the seventh theatrical Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film, which I had totally um, erased the Michael Bay ones from my mind. Yeah, I, I oh, there were not. I forgot that was a thing. You just ooh. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, this film is a reboot of the series, um, taking us back to the origins of our heroes in the half shell, Leonardo, Michelangelo, Raphael, and Donatello, along with their father figure, uh, Master Splinter, uh, played in this film by martial arts legend Jackie Chan. The film is a coming-of-age story where the four brothers, along with their new friend, um, high school reporter April O'Neill, um, attempt to solve a string of high-tech heists perpetrated by the mysterious crime boss only known as Superfly in the hopes of being accepted by society as heroes and um, in turn being able to leave the sewers and live a normal teenage life. So I guess to start off, what do we all think of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem? I had a lot of fun. And I really, really liked it on several fronts. I thought, you know, this, I think, is the downwind effect of Into the Spider-Verse, where we're getting really interesting animation styles. So even if it is CGI, it's not like that classic, like, Pixar DreamWorks look. Um, You know, it's very kinetic. It's very colorful. You have these, like, 
crayon-esque, almost childish aesthetic, which really makes sense in this like coming of age story. Mm-hmm. The way the humans are drawn are very interesting. They're like very grotesque. <laughs> and and the teen the mm-hmm. mutants in this are actually like, especially our hero turtles are like very, very like polished and you know, cute versus, you know, I, I th- you could tell who's evil because their face is lopsided, <laughs> uh, which is fun. And I think from like a pure movie standpoint, this is like one of the most structurally sound movies I have seen in a really long time. I think when it comes to like movies aimed for kids, sometimes you either try to break it too much or you like, I feel like Disney has been caught in like a little like, we need to put a twist in this rut for a while or they go to like, we're going to do too heavy on the references and jokes and like not worry too much story. Like if you break down all, like if you take out everything, I was like, Oh, this is a very structurally sound coming of age movie, which like, you know, I'm a whore for. Um, so, and then, mm-hmm. and then like everything from the music to the voice cast to, I, I they did, they did, they did not do the thing that annoys me, which is when they cast really famous people who don't know how to voice act to be ca- animated mm-hmm. characters. I think the teenage, uh, the four turtles are like not, uh, not very well known actors. I don't see a, like a Wikipedia link for their name except for one of them, but I don't know who he is. Um, and I think it imbues it with like a lot more character. And um, you know, I I even think the Jackie Chan of it all is really was really well played and they were able to do some fun stuff with that and like on a business standpoint i think it's very smart that they did an origin story because i don't think gen z knows too much about the ninja turtles i think they understand that that's an ip and there's familiarity but like the last animated series was how long ago and they don't have, you know, they don't do Saturday morning cartoons anymore. So kind of to do a reset and like introduce the characters, like all the, you know, big plot points, the relationships in this way was really smart. And now they can do the franchise. Um, so basically, I agree with everything that um, just said. It's aesthetically, storytelling wise, performance wise, uh all very good, well balanced. Um, I think a great bridge between Gen yes. X and Gen Z, uh, what, as far as storytelling and references. The one thing I will mention is my particular experience was uh, I wanted to see it on a Thursday afternoon, so that way I could get it out of the way, so I could do my weekend work. And um, so I was like, "Oh, I'll get this in a 4DX theater." I didn't know what that <laughs> oh, was. Oh no! Is that Anyone else know what it is? Right? When the seat moved and like they spray stuff at you? Yes. Yes. Basically, you're like on an amusement <laughs> park ride, uh, but watching the movie. So the um, you're in um, sets of like four to eight seats that are on basically oh like God. a chassis or a oh hydraulic. God. And then there's also, then there's a button and I will post this on my Instagram at some point um, on your seat handle that says oh, water wow. on oh or off. God. And I was and I was like on for sure. Um, and then it also sprays air You're at so you. so brave. Um, I will say that the water was very little. It was only like tiny little droplets and only every now and then. They could have done more, honestly. Um, 
the the air blasting on me because I'm so short. Sometimes I felt the blast <laughs> go over my head, um, and then there's also air blast at your legs. But sometimes because I'm me, I put my legs up on the chair, oh. so I I would just hear it. Um, but I will say the rocking of the of the seat is so violent. I was just like, I'm glad I'm not a bigger cup, uh, you know, because <laughs> I was about to say like any any woman who needs to like wear a sports bra probably needs to wear two. It was fairly violent. Like at the very beginning, I was like, was this a good decision for me uh, as someone who gets motion sick? But oddly enough, it actually worked because it made me move a little bit more with the action versus if I was trying to stay still and try to keep my eyes on the action, I might've actually gotten sicker. But I also knew the way I am with amusement park rides is I kind of just have to like let go and just not focus on too many things on the screen at once. So um, it actually ended up working very well. Like, you know, even the opening where the title Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles like spins, um, your, your seat kind of <laughs> wobbles a little bit. So, um, and the most violent one um, reactions were, you know, during the big fights, of course. And that was when I was like, okay, you need to stop and you need to have a conversation at some point so I can be still. Um, but if, if, if for some reason you are into that, I, I do think it's an interesting experiment, experience. After a while, it got a little bit much, but by the end of the movie, I did Yeah, I think it really much, so. depends on um, what type of yeah. movie. There's certain movies that lend itself <laughs> to it. Like, my last experience with that sort of seat was with D-Box, which is, I think, the, the previous iteration. So it didn't have the, the water or the air, but did have the movie. And the movie that I watched in D-Box was Pacific Rim, which is a great film for D-Box. Oh, I think it's like that's that a good film one. and, yeah. like, Fast and Furious yeah. films are, like, great for that sort of thing. This one was really good for it, too, because even like, let's say if they were throwing um, uh, a ninja star, then you'd feel oh, the air cute. go by your head. Um, yeah. And, and then there's like a car chase scene. You definitely feel that. So th- this was actually utilized it quite a bit, maybe a little <laughs> bit too much. But um, like I wouldn't tell my mom to do write this. But um, yeah, I think if you're into amusement park rides and aren't don't get too sick. So it's I actually watched a like a featurette for these things before. And like, there's actually a guy who like his job is to watch the film and program what the seat does like scene for scene. Oh yeah. I assume yeah, so. That makes sense. Uh, it's, it's yeah. It's beautifully. Like, I would, I would be like, Oh, can we do this for like, I don't know when Harry met Sally or, or like why? a haunting in why? Venice. Why? Can you just do this on a, a or I, murder on the Orient Express? You're just like on a slow rumbling train the entire train. time. That's kind of that's. Actually I mean, the only downside nice. is I that it's like, like a thirty dollar ticket right there. Well, I went during the day, so it was okay. only it was less than twenty, which was still <laughs> which was still a lot. I think it was like 16. that's like a normal movie though for like but regular seats. Yeah, yeah. So I thought. Yeah, I wouldn't do it on the like the height of you know like prime time, but I on a um, matinee. <laughs> it was basically a matinee price for that yeah. type of thing. So anyway, yes, uh, that's an extra review for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had a really great time with this film as well. Um, tons of really great references. I love the writing and the performances, and I think personally, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles just holds a very special place in my heart because you know how like when you're growing up. Especially when you're, you know, in that era between like kindergarten and third grade, each generation has like a a show or franchise that kind of becomes their whole personality, right? Mm -hmm. And for my generation, that was the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you know, the generation after me for my brother, that was Power Rangers. After that, probably like Avatar The Last Airbender. But Ninja Turtles for us was like 
what we played during during recess, right? We all pretended to be Ninja Turtles running around the playground. Um, I had the action figures. I had the VHS tapes. I even probably started eating pizza because of the Ninja Turtles. So definitely a big part of my childhood. But it's also a franchise that I haven't really thought about in a long time. Like I mentioned, I did skip those Michael Bay films because yeah. those films were my Ninja Turtles. I mean, he basically did that to, you know, also to, to Transformers, kind of like meh. Yeah. And, you know, I know there's been a couple animated series since the original early 90s mm-hmm. series, but, you know, I haven't really seen they any of those. Right. So yeah, was definitely a like nostalgic feeling to go back into the world of Ninja Turtles. And thinking back, I think a reason why Ninja Turtles resonated with me so much was not only because it was like cool ninja stuff, but also I think for a young Asian American kid, it was probably the first Mm -hmm. crumbs of representation that we got from, you know, American media, right? Yeah. The original Master Splinter was a Japanese man who got transformed into a a giant rat. Yes. And so the turtles themselves, they're like at the very least Mm -hmm. like culturally Asian, right? Culturally Asian, yes. Yeah, they were also, they were also outsiders, you know, and of course yeah. they knew martial arts. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I no, I totally agree. Um, Ninja Turtles was also, I don't, uh, I think we kind of overlap a little bit here, but was also part of my identity growing up. Uh, when it comes to kind of like how Karate Kid was, <laughs> uh, in a weird way, um, the. the uh, sort of thirst for representation and also you know they they have some cool fight stuff right so um yeah i when i was going to go see this i was excited because you know how we all do the which sex in the city character are you or which um uh golden girl are you this was me i was just like which t- teenage mutant ninja turtle are you um and they're all foursomes <laughs> interesting um but yeah so it it really brought me back and it made me kind of like love the property again when I hadn't really been thinking about it for a long time. Yeah. And I really love that in this iteration, the Ninja Turtles were actual teenagers because thinking back, like even in the early cartoons, they were kind of at best like young yeah. adults, right? They never really acted like teens. They like said stuff like cool and tubular and cowabunga, mm-hmm. but they didn't really deal with teen stuff. And in this film, they these are teen ass teens. Yeah. And the, I think the comic books were also very dark, like, that wasn't like teenage stuff. It was, uh, they were, yeah, they these acted like 18 year olds where they're like right? <laughs> so. YA protagonists as opposed to like, mm-hmm. you know, like early yeah. teens. I really like that about it. I like that, you know, because they're actual teens, they get to, they, they're, they're a lot more innocent, right? Like usually like Ninja Turtles has some element of brooding, right? Like Raphael in the original, in the first like live action movie was just a brooding guy who's can't deal with his anger. Whereas here he's like a, a hyperactive guy who has, Maybe some anger issues or anger is how he expresses his emotions, but he's still like an innocent kid who like likes to hang out with his brothers. And and they always make sure to like temper with like you need therapy. Like, (laughs) why are you this angry? You know, Um, and yeah, it's just very sweet. I I think the the relationship between the brothers and how uh, and the relationship with dad with with the rat dad is so sweet. Um, (laughs) I was like, oh, are they doing, um, are they being Asian tiger dadded right now? Like super strict, sneaking out. I also really related to that, you know, when you're not allowed to go out or you go out too much. So you have to like port like ration when you go out so you can go out when it's important. I was like, these, these turtles get it too. Yeah. I, I did like this. One of the central themes is like when you're different from everyone else, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that as a dad? Right. Like, and then we have yeah. two dad figures in this film 
who deal with it in different ways, right? Um, Splinter decides to hide his kids and protect them from all outside forces, um, thereby sheltering them. And the other dad, which is Superfly, the villain, decides, you know what? I'm just going to destroy the world <laughs> that threatens my, my kids, my siblings. I Yeah, and I also like when we were talking about differences is we get each of the four turtles um, personalities and their interests and and they're very pro nerd you know um, so they start they celebrate each of the, their very nerdy um, sort of geeky interests well and I think that they were able to establish um, each of them uh, fairly st- distinctly so uh, which leads to the question of course is which ninja turtle are you <laughs> uh, Jess what did, what did you say? I'm Raphael because me angry and a little impulsive I could see that but yeah, so for me, it was always Donatello. Maybe it's just because I like purple. But uh, he does machines, as this, uh, the song from the old cartoon tells it. Um, but he also used a bow staff. That's always something that I've been wanting to learn how to use. Now, does that mean that that's actually me? Eh, debatable. But I do like to tinker with things, um, uh, learn how to pick locks, all that type of stuff. So sort of identify yeah. with him. See, me and every single child, because Michelangelo is always the coolest. Like, we all thought we were Mikey. But to be honest, I'm probably more of a Leo. Like I think you're a Leo. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, he's the leader, right? But yeah. he's responsible. He's also the narc. The narc, yeah. I'm not a narc per se, but I do have like, you, you know. You I'm, have a strong I'm code the, of honor. I mean, I'm, I'm an older brother. So like that's, mm. I think that's why I kind of relate mm. to Leo too, because he's the one who tries to like yeah. be responsible for his younger um, rambunctious siblings who are always getting into trouble. And I really like how they, um, you know, because they usually, Leonardo's usually depicted as like a stick in the mud. But in this mm-hmm. film, like like I mentioned, like he's like an actual, like he's a kid who wants to have fun, but is torn between his responsibility and like wanting to like be free. And I really like that, um, that arc for him as well. Um, plus, he's super awkward with girls. And I really love the scene where they like, you know, it, <laughs> it reminds me of like back in high school when um, my friends would like three-way a call to, to a girl. Um, just oh, to, like provide yeah. moral support to to our friend who was trying to, you know. Yeah, that's not that's not awkward. <laughs> well, um, the other the other members of the call would not talk. So yeah, that's right, so right, awkward. Right, right. Well, <laughs> but yeah, we'll get it. I mean, especially if the especially if the girl doesn't know. Um, yeah. I mean, from what I hear, girls do it too. <laughs> I never did that. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, but but speaking of Leo's crush, um, April O'Neil, which I really enjoyed this uh, take on it, uh, played by the voice uh, the actor from The Bear, Iowa Debris. Um, and she, what I liked is that, you know, she is a journalist, but they made her like this sort of awkward teenage journalist who, you know, of course is trying to break this story, but... Uh, it it she has a little bit of a background that when you find it out it just endears you <laughs> endears her to you um i really liked her portrayal um she they when you talk about actors who actually create a personality through their voice mm-hmm. she is definitely one of them and i think she made this role um with that yes i agree and i like the um <laughs> like she's She's going through the same thing as the turtles are, as as everyone is, right? Just figuring out, but in a different perspective. And, but, you know, in the true, like, Evan Goldberg and Seth Rogen, Point Grey way, they also, like, are able to get some growth out comedy through her, which <laughs> I found really funny because I'm, like, 12. Um, <laughs> that was a great scene. I, I really enjoyed I the agree. puke gag. <laughs> I don't know. Puking gag really it was gets pretty funny. Me, like going in terms of like laughter. I love a p- 
puke gag. They have to do it well, and I think they did it well. Uh, I actually <laughs> laughed too. Sometimes I think it's just like a little easy, um, but this one I think it was well well balanced. <laughs> well yeah. balanced puke. I love April's character. I really like that they brought back like their entire rogues gallery in the form of like the the enemy team of mutants. Mm. Um, you know, Bebop, Rocksteady, Genghis Frog, um, Leatherhead. They brought in like five films worth of villains. I didn't remember all of them. Yeah. <laughs> and they made them all into also Gen Z teens, which is great. It was really fun. And they were able to get like really fun voice actors for these really small roles, which, again, I think it's good casting. You're kind of like, oh, that sounds familiar, but doesn't distract you. And then later when you check it out, you're like, oh, my God, that was so and so. That was Paul Rudd. That was, um, you know, N- Natasha. Not Nadja from what we do in the shadows. That was Rose Byrne getting to mm-hmm. use her real accent. Um, so that was really, really fun. That was John Cena. Yeah. yeah. And Seth Rogen playing uh, his, really his go-to role as a warthog. A warthog. Right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, was it Ice-, Ice Cube? Ice Cube was the villain, Superfly. And the best part, we haven't even mentioned it, is it's a pretty tight runtime. Like 87 minutes, right? What the hell? It was less it was than amazing. 90 minutes, which we say the perfect. Yeah. I was shocked at how much it did in that per- period of time. Yeah. See, again, well-written. Tight, does a lot. Yeah. Uh, very good runtime. I think it, I was so excited about it. I texted you too. <laughs> yeah. The script is very tight and they tell us a very tight story. It doesn't really try to do too much. Like a lot of these reboots, they're always trying to drop like, here are some possible sequel hooks. But, you know, they do do that, but they leave it where it should be, which is a post-credits, you know, teaser. Okay. So we talked about the turtles, but do you have a favorite mutant on the uh, opposing side? Oh, my goodness. I I don't know who he was until I watched this movie, but I liked Ray Filet. Uh, <laughs> voiced by Post Malone. Right, right. Because I was, all I know is he just kept singing his name. And I was like, that shtick is enough for me um but yeah it's uh voiced by post malone austin post also really like the post malone gecko combo like that friendship was mm-hmm. very sweet Mondo he gets gecko. to ride the the ray filet across the ocean that looked really fun <laughs> um i really like the the weird frog yeah genghis frog? The, the small genghis one frog. genghis frog yeah, yeah. really like them I liked um, all of them. I even like Bebop and Rocksteady, yeah, who are usually portrayed as like oh, but they're like yeah. you know they're just like teens with anger issues. Yeah, I, I ended up liking liking them because usually I don't care. Like, uh, it's Bebop again, um, the Warthog. But this was like voiced by Seth Rogen, and they were fun. Um, yeah, I think the fact that they made them all teenagers and a little bit like uncertain about what they needed to do helped a lot. Um, yeah. Oh, so. Um, so we've already mentioned a little bit about how uh, there's a lot of pop culture references and some of them are current and some of them are Gen X sort of throwbacks, which is, you know, when it sort of originated. So um, do you have any favorite pop culture references or how they do things? I can talk about my favorite one, which is <laughs> the cover of Four Non Blondes song, What's Going Up or What's Up or uh, What's Going On? What's going on? It is what's going on, right? Which is um, also brilliant because that has also infiltrated into millennial Gen Z because there's a very popular, there's a meme of He-Man singing that nonstop for 24 hours. And I believe it was featured in a very 
interesting semi-orgy scene in the Netflix series Sensate. Got in it. Which, <laughs> in which eight individuals are able to sense what the other eight individuals are doing. So if they're having sex, uh, oh. anyway. My it, mind it, went to the He-Man <laughs> meme too, because that's a very millennial meme, right? That yeah, was like yeah. during the, the age of like early YouTube. Yeah. Yes. And so, I mean, for those un, unfamiliar, for non-blondes, what's going on is it's in a way a very self-serious but also corny song um in the way like the register keeps going up and up and up and there's a lot of screaming and yelling but um it also worked here because it was during or or a precursor to a car chase so there's one perfect moment where the song gets to the the uh the chorus and a character actually you know during the car chase something odd is going on and he actually says what's going on yeah. I mean, um, that's just that's just good comedic writing right there it's 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 so great because at first i was like oh did they just need to figure out how to get the rights to it and but i was like no they actually wrote in the thing um and it and you get a little callback to the song later on i mean my favorite pop culture references were the weeb ones right like the um they mentioned attack on titan a couple of times and yes. it actually becomes plot relevant in plot the climax relevant. Mm-hmm. um and then check the, off Attack on Titan. <laughs> and then the BTS reference was amazing. Oh, yes. Because I can definitely relate to only knowing the chorus of BTS songs. Well, the first time it was referenced, it was just a ringtone on a phone. And I was like, wait, was that butter? What? Wait, what? <laughs> what? And then it came back. And so, yeah, they did it so well. This is the thing. It's like they know exactly how much to give yes. without overdoing it. My favorite, maybe it's a deeper cut. Um, and it's maybe older generationally, but I love the use of like Jackie Chan videos to train (laughs) the Teenage Mutant Turtles, which pays again. I feel like it's also great because all this, a lot of these things pay off is like when we finally get splinter into the fight, it's essentially a Jackie Chan choreographed fight scene with the chair and the, you know, the shenanigans and the Buster Keaton esque influence. And I mean, you could Jackie Chan like Tom Cruise, very complicated person, great yes. movie star. Yeah, and I feel like Jackie Chan is just older now and like isn't doing that anymore. Can't maybe can't. And so to, it's really fun. Like this kind of opened this possibility of like, wow, like oh, we can still get Jackie Chan, but you know in this <laughs> form. And I also find it really hilarious. I audibly went, oh shit. But so Jackie Chan and all the characters he plays is very uh, infamous for not killing anyone. That's like one mm-hmm. of his rules. He doesn't kill anyone in the movies. Like they may die in the situation ship. They may fall somewhere, but like he's never responsible. Splinter just straight up stabs one of those like security guards with like the blade, like the laser blade. And I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. my God, <laughs> like people die in this movie. There's like a pretty high body count. I mean, of, let's like, say they're maimed. People get maimed. Maimed. Sure. I mean, he stabs the guy in the face, Marvin. I, I don't, but but I just found that really funny. I was like, oh, this rat is more hardcore than Jackie Chan has ever been. Jackie Chan yeah. rat. Yeah, and that reminds me of, like, I mentioned earlier that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was kind of a formative, I guess, text for me. And, like, one of the earlier bits of representation I could latch onto as, as, a, as a child. But that is also keeping in mind that it's a very, like, oriental piece of work. Mm-hmm. Like, the original mm-hmm. origin story involved like ninja clans and like splinter was like a ninja master that's how he taught his kids his mutant kids how to like fight and i do love that in this iteration it kind of they more or less removed at least the overt orientalism 
in their mm-hmm. origin story. Like Splinter is a rat to begin with. There's no he has no connection to any ninja masters from the Orient, and that they learn kung fu. They learned how to fight by watching Jackie Chan movies and like wushu films. And you know they cast. I mean, we'll see what they do with Shredder, but you know they at least cast an Asian voice actor, which <laughs> is not a given even today. Um, and yeah, I'm so, I'm also like I'm a little more lenient about this because I'm like you know we're talking about like mutant fantasy animal rat things. I'm like, yeah, it's fine. Like this, it's fine. <laughs> it, it's it's also like it might just be like with Jackie Chan where there's not a lot of orientalism in the character right it's just it, or at least in this particular rendition I mean, he's, he's just he's just an overprotective Asian yeah. dad. We all yeah know uh, yes yeah but he's oh. also like so sweet he's like oh i know you want to be outside but like he's strict because he's worried about their safety and he's not wrong <laughs> he's not wrong let's make that clear yeah. um but you know he he's like oh, i want you guys to be happy like i brought the outside world to you and like we can we can you know we can Bring that down here, which is like my compromise. So he's not like a tiger parent or a rat parent. He's he's he is very like concerned with their happiness and their well being, and and loves them obviously, and is like there to save them when when needed. Yeah, he's a good uh, dad. Yeah, he's such a good yeah. dad. <laughs> All right, yeah. there's more to talk about, but we'll save that for yeah. our spoiler zone because there are there are some things from the climax that I feel like we should discuss, but um. Before we call it a regular episode, um, have to ask, is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem good pop? Yes, it's so fun. Um, yeah, let's continue this tradition, this, you know, path of more exciting animation. And mm-hmm. this is, if you're going to bring back an IP and, you know, do IP, this is the way to do it. It's still really fresh. It's fun. I think it's a movie that's aimed for kids that sounds like it like kids would get it because nothing's more cringy than when you're like trying to hello fellow kids um <laughs> and i do think this t- i think jeff Rowe, the director who also did, did mitchell's versus machines you can tell he's like someone who's chronically online because he uses the language and the references correctly and i believe this team this production mm-hmm. company tends to do that they kind of stay on the pulse of how the language and the cultures of pop culture is evolving so yes more of this Less of the Michael Bay weird Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, yes, absolutely. I was so impressed by this, but also, you know, not in a super admiration way, but just more of like, I couldn't believe how much fun I was having watching this and just what a good time it was. So, yeah, I want to watch it again with someone, uh, maybe my nephew or someone who would just uh, appreciate it in a new way so I can um, experience it vicariously through them again. Yeah, I definitely think it's good pop as well. Like it's probably the best iteration of Ninja Turtles that I've ever seen. That's including the original cartoon series and the original live action movies. I feel like I feel like what Jeff Rowe and Seth Rogen and, and Evan Goldberg and the crew did here is like kind of give us and I wasn't expecting this, but like the if not definitive version, the most true to the concept version of like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, which is like these are just teenagers who happened to be Ninja Turtles and living in the modern world. And it was just, it was so much fun. I would watch also, it again. Shout out to Gabe Helfer, the film's music supervisor. <laughs> music supervisor is in charge of selecting and I think helping to clear all the music. A fantastic soundtrack, fantastic needle drops throughout the entire film. Yeah. 
And with that, with that enthusiastic recommendation, uh, that'll do it for this episode of the Good Pop Culture Club. Um, it's time once again for our most harrowing question of the entire podcast. Jess Han, where can people find you online these days? I don't know. X, Twitter, just you tweet still. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm at Anonymous. Uh, start out on Instagram and then expand outward from there. You might hit, <laughs> hit some other ones. Yeah. Um, I'm, yeah. That's the only one I seem to be using more regularly. Twitter, I just, I don't know. I, I'm squatting. Never give up your handle. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Marvin You can find our show at Good Pop Club. We are, as always, a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective. Check out our fellow Asian American hosted podcast by going to podcastpotluck.com. And yeah, thank you so much for listening. Um, stick around for our Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem Spoiler Zone. And we'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Hey, Brian. Did you go to Saturday school as a kid? I sure did. Did you? Totally. Well, at our podcast, Saturday School, we don't teach a language, but we pass along the culture that we do know. And that's Asian American pop culture. Ada is a journalist, and I'm a professor and film festival programmer. We've watched a lot of great Asian American movies, and we want you to watch them too. Come listen to us as we look back at the pioneering films that have led us to today. All right, welcome to Good Pop's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem Spoiler Zone. Uh, for the next few minutes, we'll be going over our thoughts on the more spoilery aspects of the film, including um, our thoughts on the final battle and some more plot-relevant points. Um, so I guess you mentioned, Han, earlier, like, what was my favorite um, <laughs> pop culture reference? And I mentioned that I liked the, the Attack on Titan. Um, I loved that the final strategy to defeat the giant fly monster is like literally inspired by Attack on Titan. See, this is also why the storytelling is so good. Like kind of like where you're talking about Chekhov's XYZ, you know, um, this one made sense because uh, who's whose favorite? Uh, which which turtle was it that loved Attack on Titan? Um, it was Donatello. Do- so it's Donnie's favorite. And, you know, th- when they were trying to figure out how to defeat Superfly when he's super, super big, um, they're like, well... You know, I know something. <laughs> it was just—it was just such a really good way to bring in their skills organically and their mm-hmm. knowledge. <laughs> the only thing that I worry about is Attack on Titan is not the most kid-friendly anime series. Yeah. It's a series about it's war like crimes. It's like fascist right? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's true. Like, that's what kids watch. It's like, you know, we, we should we have been watching Dragon Ball Z? Like, probably not. But, you know, do we go around running? And are we generally, like, well-adjusted members of society? Like, it's fine. I guess, but Dragon Ball Z didn't have like naked giant monsters and like lots of blood and gore. Like the anime itself, it's like aimed for teens and mature audiences. It's, so like, you, I wonder how many kids are going to ask their parents, "Can, can we watch, watch Attack, Attack on, on Titan?" Titan? Like, sure, yeah. it's a cartoon, and you're like, "Oh no!" Well, but you know, I, that's why you should also just be involved with your kids' lives. So there, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think the other thing is like, I don't. Well, I don't know about you, Jess, but like back when we were watching anime, it was kind of wild west. Like you got what you got, right? And so. 
I got access to a lot of really, you know, like borderline stuff that you shouldn't have been watching. So not just violent, but sexual stuff. And the, yes, there was tentacle porn in one of them. But uh, but yes, exactly. I ended up OK. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I think there's just so much anime available now that I also think that kids just gravitate towards like fun things. So if it's too violent for them, they're not going to watch it. Um, there are plenty yeah. of other choices. I did also appreciate that the final battle turned into like a kaiju battle. Yes. Like I was not expecting like that whole like final act boss fight to be against like a, a giant super mutant. I love that part. It was so like they really again like really good structure. Like they are ramping it up because you think it's over. You like give your first fight and then they ramp it up. Um, you know, I'm a sucker for the people coming together to help the hero vibe. Like it gets me. It's like pretty cliche it's very <laughs> cheesy but worked here worked in the toby mcguire not toby mcguire the andrew garfield spider-man yeah. where like mm. new york comes together this film has like a, yeah like the, you mess with one of us you mess with and all I of love us that. and new i york feel scene. like i feel like this movie was very like specifically new york in a really fun mm-hmm. way um mm-hmm. um just like with everything from the music to like you know they get a taxi in there they get a delivery guy like it's delivered in like a little plastic bodega bag like Mm-hmm. That's great. And then just the gags yeah. of all the animals sticking to Superfly. Fucking <laughs> hilarious. The giraffe that's like just stuck on his face <laughs> made me laugh so hard. Like this poor giraffe. The horse that just pops off. Um, I thought that was really funny. <laughs> <laughs> I did. And it's not like a deal breaker. I still had a lot of fun in the film. But like, you know, and I understand it's like a kid's film. So like you need to have like a, a positive, positive ending. Yeah. But um, I did find that the whole city come together to help the Ninja Turtles was really way convenient, right? Like everyone was convinced by this high school girl on the news that the Turtles are good, actually. And they all oh, like yes. believe no, it. No, we would not believe that um, in term, in, in today's world. But you know what? That's why it's a movie. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, it was very weird because I agree on both parts. Like on one hand, we're watching a fantasy animated movie about mutant animals. So... Suspension of disbelief is expected. However, even in that moment when everyone in Europe came together, I was like, they wouldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> it was so weird. We would when be they spend so the whole entire suspicious. F- <laughs> right. Because right. they spend the whole entire film telling us that, like, hey, people are super prejudiced against mutants. Like, yeah. they try to come out and live amongst the people, and they got stoned, literally. Yeah, yeah. I was like, no, they would not trust this, this young black woman <laughs> who is telling you to trust this, like, raggedy a human-sized rat, you know, <laughs> or any of these other people who who have been allied with Superfly, but no, they're really not with him anymore. It's kind of like, mm. yeah. anyway, that's just a tiny quibble, yeah. obviously. <laughs> I did like, though, that they did parallel, like the two scenes where like Superfly tries to bring his siblings out into the world and then gets you know, hate-crimed, um, paralleling Splinter trying to bring his sons out into the real world and getting hate-crimed. Like, it's... I, I I did like that they painted Splinter and and Superfly as like two sides of the same coin, but like one person resorts to violence while the other resorts to hiding, right? Like, and these are the yeah. two reactions. And then we even get that really sweet. I mean, like even even Splinter gets a character arc where he's like he sees that basically Superfly and him are thinking the same, and he realizes he can't, and he has to make that you know choice, which is like I'm like I'm like damn Ninja Turtles, you are you are really making me feel things. <laughs> yeah that was like i yeah. mean and they you know that wasn't 
that didn't take up too much arc. Like we don't yeah. really spend that much time with Splinter. They just like stuck that in there and like yeah. it works like in the overall arching like theme. Um, and you're again, it's that coming of age story from both perspectives, I think was done really smart. Yeah. The other Splinter gag that I really liked is his like immigrant father fear that his sons will get milked. If they get captured by the humans, will get milked. But they do get milked. <laughs> and then they get milked. Perfect. Actually, the the per- I love that phrase too. It's like so gross, but not like vulgar. You know what I mean? Like yeah. maybe we've been watching too much creamery, but like yeah. <laughs> like like yeah, that's what happens and they're getting milked. Like the worst fears are realized and they're like, oh shit, dad was right. Like we're <laughs> it like, was a wait. perfect callback because none of us expected that to actually happen, which maybe we should have. Oh, right. I expected I, it to happen. Oh, I did not at all. No, no. And then they like go all the way, right? Wait, this machine's name is the Milk 2000 or something. <laughs> yeah. Like it says milk uh, on the machine. It was, it was so good. So good. Such a great gag. <laughs> yeah. Um, my last observation is as like a longtime fan of Ninja Turtles, like there is this mad scientist CEO lady that's like, one of the antagonists, but not the main big bad, right? But she's kind of like probably like the the end boss of the franchise, let's say, mm-hmm. who really wants to like get the turtles or get this ooze back to like create her own um, mutant army. And her name is, I forgot her name. Cynthia she's played by Maya Rudolph. Ultron. Yeah, Cynthia Ultron, mm-hmm. which is a reference to Ultron is the race of alien that Krang is a part of from the original series. And so when I saw her and her misshapen face, I expected like some alien to pop out of her stomach because I mean, still possible. I like, that's definitely an alien. Still possible. <laughs> but I thought that was really cool. If not an Easter egg, like foreshadowing of who that person really is. And I like that they're the ones that brings in. I love that we get entire film without Shredder. And then we get the him as the tease for like the potential sequel, which we're probably going to get a sequel, right? This oh, one's yeah. doing really well. They're very, um, you know, Sonic doing knuckles at the at the end credit scene <laughs> vibe. But I also really enjoyed Sonic, so. Yeah. And I did like how they, like, kind of subverted some expectations of fans because, you know, the people who are familiar with the series knows that Baxter Stockman in the original cartoon becomes the fly man. So everyone thought that this superfly was Baxter Stockman. But it turns out he's actually the father of the fly man who gets fridged early on. And, like, it's kind of cool to see, like, the male father figure get fridged for once instead of, like, a mom. <laughs> but, I mean, I do like Giancarlo. I'm sad we... Don't get more Giancarlo Esposito. So <laughs> equal opportunity fridging. Yay. <laughs> also, like baby yeah. fly, so gross. Like, I'm sorry, like flies are gross. <laughs> I mean, baby flies are also maggots. So <laughs> <laughs> sorry, is that what's taking you out? The the inaccurate <laughs> biology of Yes. That always gets me, honestly. It like, you know, uh between was it Bugs Life and Ants? Like, even though Ants was uglier, Bugs Life didn't have enough legs. Anyway, so. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I guess on that note, any last um, thoughts or um, comments about Meet the Mayhem? It's great. Go watch it. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. already looking forward to the next one. All right. So with that, that'll, I guess that'll do it for our Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem spoiler zone. Um, thanks for staying with us. And um, we'll see you all next time. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye.